Section 10 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by John Greenman. Chapters begun in Vienna, early days, written 1897-98. So much for the earlier days and the New England branch of the Clemenses. Note, Mr. Clemens evidently intended to precede this paragraph with some data concerning his New England ancestry, but he never did so. A.B.P. The other brother settled in the South and is remotely responsible for me. He has collected his reward generations ago, whatever it was. He went South with his particular friend Fairfax, and settled in Maryland with him, but afterward went further and made his home in Virginia. This is the Fairfax whose descendants were to enjoy a curious distinction, that of being American-born English earls. The founder of the house was the Lord General Fairfax of the Parliamentary Arm in Cromwell's time. The earldom, which is of recent date, came to the American Fairfaxes through the failure of male heirs in England. Old residents of San Francisco will remember Charlie, the American Earl of the mid-sixties, tenth Lord Fairfax, according to Burke's peerage, and holder of a modest public office of some sort or other in the new mining town of Virginia City, Nevada. He was never out of America. I knew him, but not intimately. He had a golden character, and that was all his fortune. He laid his title aside and gave it a holiday until his circumstances should improve to a degree consonant with his dignity. But that time never came, I think. He was a manly man and had fine generosities in his makeup. A prominent and pestilent creature named Ferguson, who was always picking quarrels with better men than himself, picked one with him one day and Fairfax knocked him down. Ferguson gathered himself up and went off mumbling threats. Fairfax carried no arms and refused to carry any now, though his friends warned him that Ferguson was of a treacherous disposition and would be sure to take revenge by base means sooner or later. Nothing happened for several days. Then Ferguson took the earl by surprise and snapped a revolver at his breast. Fairfax wrenched the pistol from him and was going to shoot him, but the man fell on his knees and begged, and said, Don't kill me. I have a wife and children. Fairfax was in a towering passion, but the appeal reached his heart, and he said, They have done me no harm, and he let the rascal go. Back of the Virginian Clemenses is a dim procession of ancestors stretching back to Noah's time. According to tradition, some of them were pirates and slavers in Elizabeth's time, but this is no discredit to them for so were Drake and Hawkins and the others. It was a respectable trade then, and monarchs were partners in it. In my time I have had desires to be a pirate myself. The reader, if he will look deep down in his secret heart, will find, but never mind what he will find there. I am not writing his autobiography, but mine. Later, according to tradition, one of the procession was ambassador to Spain in the time of James I, or of Charles I, 
and married there and sent down a strain of Spanish blood to warm us up. Also, according to tradition, this one or another, Jeffrey Clement, by name, helped to sentence Charles to death. I have not examined into these traditions myself, partly because I was indolent, and partly because I was so busy polishing up this end of the line and trying to make it showy. But the other Clemenses claim that they have made the examination and that it stood the test. Therefore I have always taken for granted that I did help Charles out of his troubles by ancestral proxy. My instincts have persuaded me, too. Whenever we have a strong and persistent and ineradicable instinct, we may be sure that it is not original with us, but inherited, inherited from away back, and hardened and perfected by the petrifying influence of time. Now, I have been always and unchangingly bitter against Charles, and I am quite certain that this feeling trickled down to me through the veins of my forebears, from the heart of that judge, for it is not my disposition to be bitter against people on my own personal account. I am not bitter against Jeffreys. I ought to be, but I am not. It indicates that my ancestors of James the Second's time were indifferent to him. I do not know why. I never could make it out, but that is what it indicates. And I have always felt friendly towards Satan. Of course, that is ancestral. It must be in the blood, for I could not have originated it. And so, by the testimony of instinct, backed by the assertions of the Clemenses, who said they had examined the records, I have always been obliged to believe that Geoffrey Clement, the martyr-maker, was an ancestor of mine, and to regard him with favor, and in fact pride. This has not had a good effect upon me, for it has made me vain, and that is a fault. It has made me set myself above people who were less fortunate in their ancestry than I, and has moved me to take them down a peg, upon occasion, and say things to them which hurt them before company. A case of the kind happened in Berlin several years ago. William Walter Phelps was our minister at the Emperor's court then, and one evening he had me to dinner to meet Count S., a cabinet minister. This nobleman was of long and illustrious descent. Of course I wanted to let out the fact that I had some ancestors, too, but I did not want to pull them out of their graves by the ears, and I never could seem to get the chance to work them in in a way that would look sufficiently casual. I suppose Phelps was in the same difficulty. In fact, he looked distraught now and then, just as a person looks who wants to uncover an ancestor purely by accident and cannot think of a way that will seem accidental enough. But at last, after dinner, he made a try. He took us about his drawing-room, showing us the pictures, and finally stopped before a rude and ancient engraving. It was a picture of the court that tried Charles I. There was a pyramid of judges in Puritan slouch-hats, 
and below them three bareheaded secretaries seated at a table. Mr. Phelps put his finger upon one of the three and said, with exulting indifference, an ancestor of mine. I put my finger on a judge and retorted with scathing languidness, ancestor of mine, but it is a small matter. I have others. It was not noble in me to do it. I have always regretted it since, but it landed him. I wonder how he felt. However, it made no difference in our friendship, which shows that he was fine and high, notwithstanding the humbleness of his origin. And it was also creditable in me, too, that I could overlook it. I made no change in my bearing toward him, but always treated him as an equal. But it was a hard night for me in one way. Mr. Phelps thought I was the guest of honor, and so did Count S., but I didn't, for there was nothing in my invitation to indicate it. It was just a friendly off-hand note on a card. By the time dinner was announced, Phelps was himself in a state of doubt. Something had to be done, and it was not a handy time for explanations. He tried to get me to go out with him, but I held back. Then he tried S, and he also declined. There was another guest, but there was no trouble about him. We finally went out in a pile. There was a decorous plunge for seats, and I got the one at Mr. Phelps' left. The Count captured the one facing Phelps, and the other guest had to take the place of honor, since he could not help himself. We returned to the drawing-room in the original disorder. I had new shoes on, and they were tight. At eleven I was privately crying. I couldn't help it. The pain was so cruel. Conversation had been dead for an hour. S. had been due at the bedside of a dying official ever since half-past nine. At last we all rose by one blessed impulse and went down to the street door without explanations, in a pile and no precedence, and so parted. The evening had its defects. Still I got my ancestor in and was satisfied. Among the Virginian Clemenses were Jerry and Sherard. Jerry Clemens had a wide reputation as a good pistol shot, and once it enabled him to get on the friendly side of some drummers when they wouldn't have paid any attention to mere smooth words and arguments. He was out stumping the state at the time. The drummers were grouped in front of the stand and had been hired by the opposition to drum while he made his speech. When he was ready to begin, he got out his revolver and laid it before him and said in his soft, silky way, I do not wish to hurt anybody, and shall try not to, but I have got just a bullet apiece for those six drums and if you should want to play on them, don't stand behind them. Sherard Clemens was a Republican congressman from West Virginia in the war days, and then went out to St. Louis, where the James Clemens branch lived, and still lives, and there he became a warm rebel. This was after the war. At the time that he was a Republican, I was a rebel.
but by the time he had become a rebel i was become temporarily a republican the clemenses have always done the best they could to keep the political balances level no matter how much it might inconvenience them i did not know what had become of sherard clemens but once i introduced senator hawley to a republican mass meeting in new england and then i got a bitter letter from sherard from st louis he said that the republicans of the north no the mudsills of the north had swept away the old aristocracy of the south with fire and sword and it ill became me an aristocrat by blood to train with that kind of swine did i forget that i was a lambton that was a reference to my mother's side of the house my mother was a lambton lambton with a p for some of the american lamptons could not spell very well in early times and so the name suffered at their hands she was a native of kentucky and married my father in lexington in eighteen twenty three when she was twenty years old and he twenty-four neither of them had an overplus of property she brought him two or three negroes but nothing else i think they removed to the remote and secluded village of jamestown in the mountain solitudes of east tennessee there their first crop of children was born but as i was of a later vintage i do not remember anything about it i was postponed postponed to missouri missouri was an unknown new state and needed attractions i think my eldest brother orion my sisters pamela and margaret and my brother benjamin were born in jamestown there may have been others but as to that i am not sure it was a great lift for that little village to have my parents come there it was hoped that they would stay so that it would become a city it was supposed that they would stay and so there was a boom but by and by they went away and prices went down and it was many years before jamestown got another start i have written about jamestown in the gilded age a book of mine but it was from hearsay not from personal knowledge my father left a fine estate behind him in the region round about jamestown seventy-five thousand acres note correction 1906 it was above one hundred thousand it appears when he died in eighteen forty seven he had owned it about twenty years the taxes were almost nothing five dollars a year for the whole and he had always paid them regularly and kept his title perfect he had always said that the land would not become valuable in his time but that it would be a commodious provision for his children some day it contained coal copper iron and timber and he said that in the course of time railways would pierce to that region and then the property would be property in fact as well as in name it also produced a wild grape of a promising sort he had sent some samples to nicholas longworth of cincinnati to get his judgment upon them and mr longworth had said that they would make as good wine as his catawbas 
the land contained all these riches and also oil but my father did not know that and of course in those early days he would have cared nothing about it if he had known it the oil was not discovered until about eighteen ninety five i wish i owned a couple of acres of the land now in which case i would not be writing autobiographies for a living my father's dying charge was cling to the land and wait let nothing beguile it away from you my mother's favorite cousin james lampton who figures in the gilded age as colonel sellers always said of that land and said it with blazing enthusiasm too there's millions in it millions it is true that he always said that about everything and was always mistaken too but this time he was right which shows that a man who goes around with a prophecy gun ought never to get discouraged if he will keep up his heart and fire at everything he sees he is bound to hit something by and by many persons regarded colonel sellers as a fiction an invention an extravagant impossibility and did me the honor to call him a creation but they were mistaken i merely put him on paper as he was he was not a person who could be exaggerated the incidents which looked most extravagant both in the book and on the stage were not inventions of mine but were facts of his life and i was present when they were developed john t raymond's audiences used to come near to dying with laughter over the turnip eating scene but extravagant as the scene was it was faithful to the facts in all its absurd details the thing happened in lampton's own house and i was present in fact i was myself the guest who ate the turnips in the hands of a great actor that piteous scene would have dimmed any manly spectator's eyes with tears and racked his ribs apart with laughter at the same time but raymond was great in humorous portrayal only in that he was superb he was wonderful in a word great in all things else he was a pygmy of pygmies the real colonel sellers as i knew him in james lampton was a pathetic and beautiful spirit a manly man a straight and honorable man a man with a big foolish unselfish heart in his bosom a man born to be loved and he was loved by all his friends and by his family worshipped it is the right word to them he was but little less than a god the real colonel sellers was never on the stage only half of him was there raymond could not play the other half of him it was above his level there was only one man who could have played the whole of colonel sellers and that was frank mayo note raymond was playing colonel sellers in eighteen seventy six and along there about twenty years later mayo dramatized pudd'nhead wilson and played the title role delightfully it is a world of surprises they fall too where one is least expecting them when i introduced sellers into the book charles dudley warner who was writing the story with me 
proposed a change of Sellers' Christian name. Ten years before, in a remote corner of the West, he had come across a man named Eshal Sellers, and he thought that Eshal was just the right and fitting name for our Sellers, since it was odd and quaint and all that. I liked the idea, but I said that that man might turn up and object. But Warner said it couldn't happen, that he was doubtless dead by this time, and be he dead or alive, we must have the name. It was exactly the right one, and we couldn't do without it. So the change was made. Warner's man was a farmer in a cheap and humble way. When the book had been out a week, a college-bred gentleman of courtly manners and ducal upholstery arrived in Hartford in a sultry state of mind, and with a libel suit in his eye, and his name was Eshal Sellers. He had never heard of the other one, and had never been within a thousand miles of him. This damaged aristocrat's program was quite definite and businesslike. The American Publishing Company must suppress the edition as far as printed, and change the name in the plates, or stand a suit for ten thousand dollars. He carried away the company's promise and many apologies, and we changed the name back to Colonel Mulberry Sellers in the plates. Apparently there is nothing that cannot happen. Even the existence of two unrelated men wearing the impossible name of Eshal Sellers is a possible thing. James Lampton floated all his days in a tinted mist of magnificent dreams, and died at last without seeing one of them realized. I saw him last in 1884, when it had been twenty-six years since I ate the basin of raw turnips and washed them down with a bucket of water in his house. He was become old and white-headed, but he entered to me in the same old breezy way of his earlier life, and he was all there yet, not a detail wanting, the happy light in his eye, the abounding hope in his heart, the persuasive tongue, the miracle-breeding imagination, they were all there. And before I could turn around he was polishing up his Aladdin's lamp and flashing the secret riches of the world before me. I said to myself, I did not overdraw him by a shade. I set him down as he was, and he is the same man today. Cable will recognize him. I asked him to excuse me a moment and ran into the next room, which was Cable's. Cable and I were stumping the Union on a reading tour. I said, I am going to leave your door open so that you can listen. There is a man in there who is interesting. I went back and asked Lampton what he was doing now. He began to tell me of a small venture he had begun in New Mexico through his son. Only a little thing, a mere trifle, partly to amuse my leisure, partly to keep my capital from lying idle, but mainly to develop the boy, develop the boy. Fortune's wheel is ever revolving. He may have to work for his living some day, as strange things have happened in this world, but it's only a little thing, 
a mere trifle, as I said. And so it was, as he began it. But under his deft hands it grew and blossomed and spread, oh, beyond imagination. At the end of half an hour he finished, finished with the remark uttered in an adorably languid manner. Yes, it is but a trifle, as things go nowadays, a bagatelle, but amusing. It passes the time. The boy thinks great things of it, but he is young, you know, and imaginative, lacks the experience which comes of handling large affairs, and which tempers the fancy and perfects the judgment. I suppose there's a couple of millions in it, possibly three, but not more, I think. Still, for a boy, you know, just starting in life, it is not bad. I should not want him to make a fortune, let that come later. It could turn his head at his time of life, and in many ways be a damage to him. Then he said something about his having left his pocket-book lying on the table in the main drawing-room at home, and about its being after banking hours now, and I stopped him there, and begged him to honor Cable and me by being our guest at the lecture, with as many friends as might be willing to do us the like honor. He accepted, and he thanked me, as a prince might, who had granted us a grace. The reason I stopped his speech about the tickets was because I saw that he was going to ask me to furnish them to him and let him pay next day, and I knew that if he made the debt he would pay it if he had to pawn his clothes. After a little further chat he shook hands heartily and affectionately and took his leave. Cable put his head in at the door and said, That was Colonel Sellers. As I have said, that vast plot of Tennessee land was held by my father twenty years, intact. When he died in 1847, we began to manage it ourselves. Forty years afterward, we had managed it all the way except ten thousand acres, and gotten nothing to remember the sales by. About 1887, possibly it was earlier, the ten thousand went my brother found a chance to trade it for a house and lot in the town of Corey, in the oil regions of Pennsylvania. About 1894 he sold this property for $250. That ended the Tennessee land. If any penny of cash ever came out of my father's wise investment but that, I have no recollection of it. No, I am overlooking a detail. It furnished me a field for sellers and a book. Out of my half of the book I got twenty thousand dollars, perhaps something more. Out of the play I got seventy-five thousand dollars, just about a dollar an acre. It is curious. I was not alive when my father made the investment, therefore he was not intending any partiality yet I was the only member of the family that ever profited by it. I shall have occasion to mention this land again now and then as I go along, for it influenced our life in one way or another during more than a generation. Whenever things grew black, it rose and put out its hopeful seller's hand and cheered us up and said, Do not be afraid, 
trust in me wait it kept us hoping and hoping during forty years and forsook us at last it put our energies to sleep and made visionaries of us dreamers and indolent we were always going to be rich next year no occasion to work it is good to begin life poor it is good to begin life rich these are wholesome but to begin it poor and prospectively rich the man who has not experienced it cannot imagine the curse of it my parents removed to missouri in the early thirties i do not remember just when for i was not born then and cared nothing for such things it was a long journey in those days and must have been a rough and tiresome one the home was made in the wee village of florida in monroe county and i was born there in eighteen thirty five the village contained a hundred people and i increased the population by one per cent it is more than many of the best men in history could have done for a town it may not be modest in me to refer to this but it is true there is no record of a person doing as much not even shakespeare but i did it for florida and it shows that i could have done it for any place even london i suppose recently someone in missouri has sent me a picture of the house i was born in heretofore i have always stated that it was a palace but i shall be more guarded now i used to remember my brother henry walking into a fire outdoors when he was a week old it was remarkable in me to remember a thing like that and it was still more remarkable that i should cling to the delusion for thirty years that i did remember it for of course it never happened he would not have been able to walk at that age if i had stopped to reflect i should not have burdened my memory with that impossible rubbish so long it is believed by many people that an impression deposited in a child's memory within the first two years of its life cannot remain there five years but that is an error the incident of benvenuto cellini and the salamander must be accepted as authentic and trustworthy and then that remarkable and indisputable instance in the experience of helen keller however i will speak of that at another time for many years i believed that i remembered helping my grandfather drink his whiskey toddy when i was six weeks old but i do not tell about that any more now i am grown old and my memory is not as active as it used to be when i was younger i could remember anything whether it had happened or not but my faculties are decaying now and soon i shall be so i cannot remember any but the things that never happened it is sad to go to pieces like this but we all have to do it my uncle john a quarles was a farmer and his place was in the country four miles from florida he had eight children and fifteen or twenty negroes and was also fortunate in other ways particularly in his character i have not come across a better man than he was i was his guest for two or three months every year 
from the fourth year after we removed to Hannibal till I was eleven or twelve years old. I have never consciously used him or his wife in a book, but his farm has come very handy to me in literature once or twice. In Huck Finn and in Tom Sawyer, detective, I moved it down to Arkansas. It was all of six hundred miles, but it was no trouble. It was not a very large farm, five hundred acres, perhaps, but I could have done it if it had been twice as large. And as for the morality of it, I cared nothing for that. I would move a state if the exigencies of literature required it. It was a heavenly place for a boy, that farm of my Uncle John's. The house was a double log one, with a spacious floor roofed in, connecting it with the kitchen. In the summer the table was set in the middle of that shady and breezy floor, and the sumptuous meals, well, it makes me cry to think of them. Fried chicken, roast pig, wild and tame turkeys, ducks and geese, venison just killed, squirrels, rabbits, pheasants, partridges, prairie chickens, biscuits, hot batter cakes, hot buckwheat cakes, hot wheat bread, hot rolls, hot corn pone, fresh corn boiled on the ear, succotash, butter beans, string beans, tomatoes, peas, Irish potatoes, sweet potatoes, buttermilk, sweet milk, clabber, watermelons, muskmelons, cantaloupes, all fresh from the garden, apple pie, peach pie, pumpkin pie, apple dumplings, peach cobbler, I can't remember the rest. The way that the things were cooked was perhaps the main splendor, particularly a certain few of the dishes. For instance, the cornbread, the hot biscuits, and wheat bread, and the fried chicken. These things have never been properly cooked in the North. In fact, no one there is able to learn the art so far as my experience goes. The North thinks it knows how to make cornbread, but this is mere superstition. Perhaps no bread in the world is quite so good as southern cornbread and perhaps no bread in the world is quite so bad as the northern imitation of it. The North seldom tries to fry chicken, and this is well. The art cannot be learned north of the line of Mason and Dixon, nor anywhere in Europe. That is not hearsay, it is experience that is speaking. In Europe it is imagined that the custom of serving various kinds of bread blazing hot is American, but that is too broad a spread. It is custom in the South, but is much less than that in the North. In the North and in Europe hot bread is considered unhealthy. This is probably another fussy superstition, like the European superstition that ice water is unhealthy. Europe does not need ice water and does not drink it, and yet, notwithstanding this, its word for it is better than ours because it describes it, whereas ours doesn't. Europe calls it iced water. Our word describes water made from melted ice, a drink which has a characterless taste and which we have but little acquaintance with. 
it seems a pity that the world should throw away so many good things merely because they are unwholesome i doubt if god has given us any refreshment which taken in moderation is unwholesome except microbes yet there are people who strictly deprive themselves of each and every edible drinkable and smokable which has in any way acquired a shady reputation they pay this price for health and health is all they get for it how strange it is it is like paying out your whole fortune for a cow that has gone dry the farmhouse stood in the middle of a very large yard and the yard was fenced on three sides with rails and on the rear side with high palings against these stood the smoke-house beyond the palings was the orchard beyond the orchard were the negro quarters and the tobacco fields the front yard was entered over a stile made of sawed-off logs of graduated heights i do not remember any gate in a corner of the yard were a dozen lofty hickory trees and a dozen black walnuts and in the nutting season riches were to be gathered there down a piece abreast the house stood a little log cabin against the rail fence and there the woody hill fell sharply away past the barns the corn crib the stables and the tobacco curing house to a limpid brook which sang along over its gravelly bed and curved and frisked in and out and here and there and yonder in the deep shade of overhanging foliage and vines a divine place for wading and it had swimming pools too which were forbidden to us and therefore much frequented by us for we were little christian children and had early been taught the value of forbidden fruit in the little log cabin lived a bedridden white-headed slave woman whom we visited daily and looked upon with awe for we believed she was upward of a thousand years old and had talked with moses the younger negroes credited these statistics and had furnished them to us in good faith we accommodated all the details which came to us about her and so we believed that she had lost her health in the long desert trip coming out of egypt and had never been able to get it back again she had a round bald place on the crown of her head and we used to creep around and gaze at it in reverent silence and reflect that it was caused by fright through seeing pharaoh drowned we called her aunt hannah southern fashion she was superstitious like the other negroes also like them she was deeply religious like them she had great faith in prayer and employed it in all ordinary exigencies but not in cases where a dead certainty of result was urgent whenever witches were around she tied up the remnant of her wool in little tufts with white thread and this promptly made the witches impotent all the negroes were friends of ours and with those of our own age we were in effect comrades I say in effect using the phrase as a modification we were comrades and yet not comrades color and condition interposed a subtle line which both parties were conscious of and which rendered complete fusion impossible 
we had a faithful and affectionate good friend ally and adviser in uncle dan'l a middle-aged slave whose head was the best one in the negro quarter whose sympathies were wide and warm and whose heart was honest and simple and knew no guile he has served me well these many many years i have not seen him for more than half a century and yet spiritually i have had his welcome company a good part of that time and have staged him in books under his own name and as jim and carted him all around to hannibal down the mississippi on a raft and even across the desert of sahara in a balloon and he has endured it all with the patience and friendliness and loyalty which were his birthright it was on the farm that i got my strong liking for his race and my appreciation of certain of its fine qualities this feeling and this estimate have stood the test of sixty years and more and have suffered no impairment the black face is as welcome to me now as it was then in my schoolboy days i had no aversion to slavery i was not aware that there was anything wrong about it no one arraigned it in my hearing the local papers said nothing against it the local pulpit taught us that god approved it that it was a holy thing and that the doubter need only look in the bible if he wished to settle his mind and then the texts were read aloud to us to make the matter sure if the slaves themselves had an aversion to slavery they were wise and said nothing in hannibal we seldom saw a slave misused on the farm never there was however one small incident of my boyhood days which touched this matter and it must have meant a good deal to me or it would not have stayed in my memory clear and sharp vivid and shallowless all these slow drifting years we had a little slave boy whom we had hired from someone there in hannibal he was from the eastern shore of maryland and had been brought away from his family and his friends halfway across the american continent and sold he was a cheery spirit innocent and gentle and the noisiest creature that ever was perhaps all day long he was singing whistling yelling whooping laughing it was maddening devastating unendurable at last one day i lost all my temper and went raging to my mother and said sandy had been singing for an hour without a single break and i couldn't stand it and wouldn't she please shut him up the tears came into her eyes and her lip trembled and she said something like this poor thing when he sings it shows that he is not remembering and that comforts me but when he is still i am afraid he is thinking and i cannot bear it he will never see his mother again if he can sing i must not hinder it but be thankful for it if you were older you would understand me then that friendless child's noise would make you glad it was a simple speech and made up of small words but it went home and sandy's noise was not a trouble to me any more she never used large words 
but she had a natural gift for making small ones do effective work. She lived to reach the neighborhood of ninety years, and was capable with her tongue to the last, especially when a meanness or an injustice roused her spirit. She has come handy to me several times in my books, where she figures as Tom Sawyer's Aunt Polly. I fitted her out with a dialect, and tried to think up other improvements for her, but did not find any. I used Sandy once also. It was in Tom Sawyer. I tried to get him to whitewash the fence, but it did not work. I do not remember what name I called him by in the book. I can see the farm yet with perfect clearness. I can see all its belongings, all its details. The family room of the house, with a trundle bed in one corner and a spinning wheel in another, a wheel whose rising and falling wail heard from a distance was the mournfulest of all sounds to me, and made me homesick and low-spirited, and filled my atmosphere with the wandering spirits of the dead. The vast fireplace, piled high on winter nights, with flaming hickory logs from whose ends a sugary sap bubbled out, but did not go to waste, for we scraped it off and ate it. The lazy cat spread out on the rough hearthstones, the drowsy dogs braced against the jams and blinking, my aunt in one chimney-corner knitting, my uncle in the other smoking his corn-cob pipe, the slick and carpetless oak floor faintly mirroring the dancing flame-tongues and freckled with black indentations where fire-coals had popped out and died a leisurely death half a dozen children romping in the background twilight split-bottomed chairs here and there some with rockers a cradle out of service but waiting with confidence in the early cold mornings a snuggle of children in shirts and chemises occupying the hearthstone and procrastinating they could not bear to leave that comfortable place and go out on the wind-swept floor space between the house and kitchen where the general tin basin stood and wash along outside of the front fence ran the country road dusty in the summer time and a good place for snakes they liked to lie in it and sun themselves when they were rattlesnakes or puff adders we killed them when they were black snakes or racers or belonged to the fabled hoop breed we fled without shame when they were house snakes or garters we carried them home and put them in aunt patsy's work-basket for a surprise for she was prejudiced against snakes and always when she took the basket in her lap and they began to climb out of it it disordered her mind she never could seem to get used to them her opportunities went for nothing and she was always cold toward bats too and could not bear them and yet i think a bat is as friendly a bird as there is my mother was aunt patsy's sister and had the same wild superstitions a bat is beautifully soft and silky. I do not know any creature that is pleasanter to the touch, or is more grateful for caressings, if offered in the right spirit. I know all about these coleoptera, because our great cave, three miles below Hannibal, 
was multitudinously stocked with them, and often I brought them home to amuse my mother with. It was easy to manage, if it was a school day, because then I had ostensibly been to school, and hadn't any bats. She was not a suspicious person, but full of trust and confidence, and when I said, there's something in my coat pocket for you, she would put her hand in, but she always took it out again herself. I didn't have to tell her. It was remarkable the way she couldn't learn to like private bats. The more experience she had, the more she could not change her views. I think she was never in the cave in her life, but everybody else went there. Many excursion parties came from considerable distance up and down the river to visit the cave. It was miles in extent, and was a tangled wilderness of narrow and lofty clefts and passages. It was an easy place to get lost in. Anybody could do it, including the bats. I got lost in it myself, along with a lady, and our last candle burned down to almost nothing before we glimpsed the search party's lights winding about in the distance. Injun Joe, the half-breed, got lost in there once, and would have starved to death if the bats hadn't run short. But there was no chance of that. There were myriads of them. He told me all his story. In the book called Tom Sawyer, I starved him entirely to death in the cave, but that was in the interest of art. It never happened. General Gaines, who was our first town drunkard before Jimmy Finn got the place, was lost in there for the space of a week, and finally pushed his handkerchief out of a hole in a hilltop near Saverton, several miles down the river from the cave's mouth, and somebody saw it and dug him out. There is nothing the matter with his statistics except the handkerchief. I knew him for years, and he hadn't any. But it could have been his nose. That would attract attention. The cave was an uncanny place, for it contained a corpse, the corpse of a young girl of fourteen. It was in a glass cylinder enclosed in a copper one, which was suspended from a rail which bridged a narrow passage. The body was preserved in alcohol, and it was said that loafers and rowdies used to drag it up by the hair and look at the dead face. The girl was the daughter of a St. Louis surgeon of extraordinary ability and wide celebrity. He was an eccentric man, and did many strange things. He put the poor thing in that forlorn place himself. Beyond the road, where the snakes sunned themselves, was a dense young thicket, and through it a dim-lighted path led a quarter of a mile, then out of the dimness one emerged abruptly upon a level great prairie, which was covered with wild strawberry plants, vividly starred with prairie pinks, and walled in on all sides by forests. The strawberries were fragrant and fine, and in the season we were generally there in the crisp freshness of the early morning while the dew beads still sparkled upon the grass, and the woods were ringing with the first songs of the birds. Down the forest slopes to the left were the swings. They were made of bark stripped from hickory saplings. When they became dry, 
they were dangerous they usually broke when a child was forty feet in the air and this was why so many bones had to be mended every year i had no ill luck myself but none of my cousins escaped there were eight of them and at one time and another they broke fourteen arms among them but it cost next to nothing for the doctor worked by the year twenty-five dollars for the whole family i remember two of the florida doctors chowning and meredith they not only tended an entire family for twenty-five dollars a year but furnished the medicines themselves good measure too only the largest persons could hold a whole dose castor oil was the principal beverage the dose was half a dipperful with half a dipperful of norland's molasses added to help it down and make it taste good which it never did the next standby was calomel the next rhubarb and the next jalap then they bled the patient and put mustard plasters on him it was a dreadful system and yet the death rate was not heavy the calomel was nearly sure to salivate the patient and cost him some of his teeth there were no dentists when teeth became touched with decay or were otherwise ailing the doctor knew of but one thing to do he fetched his tongs and dragged them out if the jaw remained it was not his fault doctors were not called in cases of ordinary illness the family grandmother attended to those every old woman was a doctor and gathered her own medicines in the woods and knew how to compound doses that would stir the vitals of a cast-iron dog and then there was the indian doctor a grave savage remnant of his tribe deeply read in the mysteries of nature and the secret properties of herbs and most backwoodsmen had high faith in his powers and could tell of wonderful cures achieved by him in mauritius away off yonder in the solitudes of the indian ocean there is a person who answers to our indian doctor of the old times he is a negro and has had no teaching as a doctor yet there is one disease which he is master of and can cure and the doctors can't they send for him when they have a case it is a child's disease of a strange and deadly sort and the negro cures it with a herb medicine which he makes himself from a prescription which has come down to him from his father and grandfather he will not let any one see it he keeps the secret of its components to himself and it is feared that he will die without divulging it then there will be consternation in mauritius i was told these things by the people there in eighteen ninety six we had the faith doctor too in those early days a woman her specialty was toothache she was a farmer's old wife and lived five miles from hannibal she would lay her hand on the patient's jaw and said believe and the cure was prompt mrs utterbeck i remember her very well twice i rode out there behind my mother horseback and saw the cure performed my mother was the patient dr meredith removed to hannibal by and by 
and was our family physician there, and saved my life several times. Still he was a good man and meant well. Let it go. I was always told that I was a sickly and precarious and tiresome and uncertain child, and lived mainly on allopathic medicines during the first seven years of my life. I asked my mother about this in her old age. She was in her eighty-eighth year, and said, I suppose that during all that time you were uneasy about me. Yes, the whole time. Afraid I wouldn't live? After a reflective pause, ostensibly to think out the facts. No, afraid you would. The country schoolhouse was three miles from my uncle's farm. It stood in a clearing in the woods and would hold about twenty-five boys and girls. We attended the school with more or less regularity, once or twice a week in summer, walking to it in the cool of the morning by the forest paths, and back in the glooming at the end of the day. All the pupils brought their dinners in baskets, corn dodger, buttermilk, and other good things, and sat in the shade of the trees at noon and ate them. It is the part of my education which I look back upon with the most satisfaction. My first visit to the school was when I was seven, a strapping girl of fifteen, in the customary sunbonnet and calico dress, asked me if I used tobacco. Meaning, did I chew it? I said no. It roused her scorn. She reported me to all the crowd and said, Here is a boy, seven years old, who can't chew tobacco. By the looks and comments which this produced, I realized that I was a degraded object and was cruelly ashamed of myself. I determined to reform, but I only made myself sick. I was not able to learn to chew tobacco. I learned to smoke fairly well, but that did not conciliate anybody, and I remained a poor thing and characterless. I longed to be respected, but I never was able to rise. Children have but little charity for one another's defects. As I have said, I spent some part of every year at the farm, until I was twelve or thirteen years old. The life which I led there with my cousins was full of charm, and so is the memory of it yet. I can call back the solemn twilight and mystery of the deep woods, the earthy smells, the faint odors of the wild flowers, the sheen of rain-washed foliage, the rattling clatter of drops when the wind shook the trees, the far-off hammering of woodpeckers and the muffled drumming of wood pheasants in the remoteness of the forest, the snapshot glimpses of disturbed wild creatures scurrying through the grass. I can call it all back and make it as real as it ever was and as blessed. I can call back the prairie, and its loneliness and peace, and a vast hawk hanging motionless in the sky, with his wings spread wide, and the blue of the vault showing through the fringe of their 
end feathers i can see the woods in their autumn dress the oaks purple the hickories washed with gold the maples and the sumacs luminous with crimson fires and i can hear the rustle made by the fallen leaves as we plowed through them i can see the blue clusters of wild grapes hanging among the foliage of the saplings and i remember the taste of them and the smell i know how the wild blackberries looked and how they tasted and the same with the pawpaws the hazelnuts and the persimmons and i can feel the thumping rain upon my head of hickory nuts and walnuts when we were out in the frosty dawn to scramble for them with the pigs and the gusts of wind loosed them and sent them down i know the stain of blackberries and how pretty it is and i know the stain of walnut hulls and how little it mines soap and water also what grudged experience it had of either of them i know the taste of maple sap and when to gather it and how to arrange the troughs and the delivery tubes and how to boil down the juice and how to hook the sugar after it is made also how much better hooked sugar tastes than any that is honestly come by let bigots say what they will i know how a prize watermelon looks when it is sunning its fat rotundity among pumpkin vines and cymblins i know how to tell when it is ripe without plugging it i know how inviting it looks when it is cooling itself in a tub of water under the bed waiting i know how it looks when it lies on the table in the sheltered great floor space between house and kitchen and the children gathered for the sacrifice and their mouths watering i know the crackling sound it makes when the carving knife enters its end and i can see the split fly along in front of the blade as the knife cleaves its way to the other end i can see its halves fall apart and display the rich red meat and the black seeds and the heart standing up a luxury fit for the elect i know how a boy looks behind a yard-long slice of that melon and i know how he feels for i have been there i know the taste of the watermelon which has been honestly come by and i know the taste of the watermelon which has been acquired by art both taste good but the experienced know which tastes better i know the look of green apples and peaches and pears on the trees and i know how entertaining they are when they are inside of a person i know how ripe ones look when they are piled in pyramids under the trees and how pretty they are and how vivid their colors i know how a frozen apple looks in a barrel down cellar in the winter time and how hard it is to bite and how the frost makes the teeth ache and yet how good it is notwithstanding i know the disposition of elderly people to select the specked apples for the children and i once knew ways to beat the game i know the look of an apple that is roasting and sizzling on a hearth on a winter's evening 
and I know the comfort that comes of eating it hot, along with some sugar and a drench of cream. I know the delicate art and mystery of so cracking hickory nuts and walnuts on a flat iron with a hammer that the kernels will be delivered whole, and I know how the nuts, taken in conjunction with winter apples, cider, and doughnuts, make old people's old tales and old jokes sound fresh and crisp and enchanting, and juggle an evening away before you know what went with the time. I know the look of Uncle Dan'l's kitchen, as it was on the privileged nights when I was a child, and I can see the white and black children grouped on the hearth, with the firelight playing on their faces, and the shadows flickering upon the walls, clear back toward the cavernous gloom of the rear, and I can hear Uncle Dan'l telling the immortal tales which Uncle Remus Harris was to gather into his book, and charm the world with by and by, and I can feel again the creepy joy which quivered through me when the time for the ghost story was reached, and the sense of regret, too, which came over me, for it was always the last story of the evening, and there was nothing between it and the unwelcome bed. I can remember the bare wooden stairway in my uncle's house, and the turn to the left above the landing, and the rafters, and the slanting roof over my bed, and the squares of moonlight on the floor, and the white cold world of snow outside, seen through the curtainless window. I can remember the howling of the wind, and the quaking of the house on stormy nights, and how snug and cozy one felt under the blankets listening, and how the powdery snow used to sift in around the sashes, and lie in little ridges on the floor, and make the place look chilly in the morning, and curb the wild desire to get up, in case there was any. I can remember how very dark that room was, in the dark of the moon, and how packed it was with ghostly stillness when one woke up by accident away in the night, and forgotten sins came flocking out of the secret chambers of the memory, and wanted a hearing, and how ill-chosen the time seemed for this kind of business, and how dismal was the hoo-hooing of the owl, and the wailing of the wolf sent mourning by on the night wind. I remember the raging of the rain on that roof, summer nights, and how pleasant it was to lie and listen to it, and enjoy the white splendor of the lightning and the majestic booming and crashing of the thunder. It was a very satisfactory room, and there was a lightning-rod which was reachable from the window, an adorable and skittish thing to climb up and down summer nights, when there were duties on hand of a sort to make privacy desirable. I remember the coon and possum-hunts nights with the negroes, and the long marches through the black gloom of the woods, and the excitement which fired everybody when the distant bay of an experienced dog announced that the game was treed, then the wild scramblings and stumblings through briars and bushes and over roots to get to the spot, then the lighting of a fire and the felling of the tree, the joyful frenzy of the dogs and the negroes, and the weird picture it all made in the red glare, 
I remember it all well, and the delight that everyone got out of it, except the coon. I remember the pigeon seasons, when the birds would come in millions and cover the trees and by their weight break down the branches. They were clubbed to death with sticks, guns were not necessary and were not used. I remember the squirrel hunts and prairie chicken hunts and wild turkey hunts and all that, and how we turned out mornings while it was still dark to go on these expeditions, and how chilly and dismal it was, and how often I regretted that I was well enough to go. A toot on a tin horn brought twice as many dogs as were needed, and in their happiness they raced and scampered about, and knocked small people down, and made no end of unnecessary noise. At the word they vanished away toward the woods, and we drifted silently after them in the melancholy gloom. But presently the gray dawn stole over the world, the birds piped up, then the sun rose and poured light and comfort all around, and everything was fresh and dewy and fragrant, and life was a boon again. After three hours of tramping we arrived back wholesomely tired, overladen with game, very hungry, and just in time for breakfast. End of section 10. Chapters begun in Vienna. Early days. Written 1897-98.